Chapter 10 of the Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1 by Edmund Burke. Chapter 10 Part 3, Section 1 of Beauty It is my design to consider beauty as distinguished from the sublime, and, in the course of the inquiry, to examine how far it is consistent with it. But previous to this, we must take a short review of the opinions already entertained of this quality, which I think are hardly to be reduced any fixed principles, because men are used to talk of beauty in a figurative manner, that is to say, in a manner extremely uncertain and indeterminate. By beauty I mean that quality, or those qualities in bodies, by which they cause love, or some passion similar to it. I confine this definition to the merely sensible qualities of things, for the sake of preserving the utmost simplicity in a subject which must always distract us whenever we take in those various causes of sympathy which attaches to any persons or things from secondary considerations, and not from the direct force which they have merely on being viewed. I likewise distinguish love by which I mean that satisfaction which arises to the mind upon contemplating anything beautiful, of whatsoever nature it may be, from desire or lust, which is an energy of the mind that hurries us on to the possession of certain objects that do not affect us as they are beautiful, but by means altogether different. We shall have a strong desire for a woman of no remarkable beauty, whilst the greatest beauty in men or in other animals, though it causes love, it excites nothing at all of desire. Which shows that beauty, and the passion caused by beauty, which I call love, is different from desire, though desire may sometimes operate along with it. But it is to this latter that we must attribute those violent and tempestuous passions, and the consequent emotions of the body which attend what is called love in some of its ordinary acceptations, and not to the effects of beauty merely as it is such. Section 2. Proportion not the cause of beauty in vegetables. Beauty hath usually been said to consist in certain proportions of parts. On considering the matter, I have great reason to doubt whether beauty be at all an idea belonging to proportion. Proportion relates almost wholly to convenience, as every idea of order seems to do, and it must therefore be considered as a creature of the understanding, rather than a primary cause acting on the senses and imagination. It is not by the force of long attention and inquiry 
that we find any object to be beautiful. Beauty demands no assistance from our reasoning. Even the will is unconcerned. The appearance of beauty as effectually causes some degree of love in us as the application of ice or fire produces the ideas of heat or cold. To gain something like a satisfactory conclusion in this point, it were well to examine what proportion is, since several who make use of that word do not always seem to understand very clearly the force of the term, nor to have very distinct ideas concerning the thing itself. Proportion is the measure of relative quantity. Since all quantity is divisible, it is evident that every distinct part into which any quantity is divided must bear some relation to the other parts, or to the whole. These relations give an origin to the idea of proportion. They are discovered by mensuration, and they are the objects of mathematical inquiry. But whether any part of any determinate quantity be a fourth, or a fifth, or a sixth, or a moiety of the whole, or whether it be of equal length with any other part, or double its length, or but one half, is a matter merely indifferent to the mind. It stands neuter in the question, and it is from this absolute indifference and tranquillity of the mind that mathematical speculations derive some of their most considerable advantages, because there is nothing to interest the imagination, because the judgment sits free and unbiased to examine the point. All proportions, every arrangement of quantity, is alike to the understanding, because the same truths result to it from all, from greater, from lesser, from equality and inequality. But surely beauty is no idea belonging to mensuration, nor has it anything to do with calculation and geometry. If it had, we might then point out some certain measures which we could demonstrate to be beautiful, either as simply considered or as related to others, and we could call in those natural objects for whose beauty we have no voucher but the sense, to this happy standard, and confirm the voice of our passions by the determination of our reason. But since we have not this help, let us see whether proportion can in any sense be considered as the cause of beauty, as hath been so generally and, by some, so confidently affirmed. If proportion be one of the constituents of beauty, it must derive that power either from some natural properties inherent in certain measures which operate mechanically, from the operation of custom, or from the fitness which some measures have to answer some particular ends of conveniency. Our business, therefore, is to inquire whether the parts of those objects which are found beautiful in the vegetable or animal kingdoms are constantly so formed according to such certain measures 
as may serve to satisfy us that their beauty results from those measures, on the principle of a natural mechanical cause, or from custom, or, in fine, from their fitness for any determinate purposes. I intend to examine this point under each of these heads in their order, but before I proceed further I hope it will not be thought amiss if I lay down the rules which governed me in this inquiry, and which have misled me in it if I have gone astray. 1. If two bodies produce the same or a similar effect on the mind, and on examination they are found to agree in some of their properties and to differ in others, the common effect is to be attributed to the properties in which they agree, and not to those in which they differ. 2. Not to account for the effect of a natural object from the effect of an artificial object. 3. Not to account for the effect of any natural object from a conclusion of our reason concerning its uses, if a natural cause may be assigned. 4. Not to admit any determinate quantity, or any relation of quantity, as the cause of a certain effect, if the effect is produced by different or opposite measures and relations, or if these measures and relations may exist, and yet the effect may not be produced. These are the rules which I have chiefly followed whilst I examined into the power of proportion considered as a natural cause, and these, if he thinks them just, I request the reader to carry with him throughout the following discussion, whilst we inquire in the first place in what things we find this quality of beauty, next, to see whether in these we can find any assignable proportions in such a manner as ought to convince us that our idea of beauty results from them. We shall consider this pleasing power as it appears in vegetables, in the inferior animals, and in man. Turning our eyes to the vegetable creation, we find nothing there so beautiful as flowers. But flowers are almost of every sort of shape and of every sort of disposition. They are turned and fashioned into an infinite variety of forms, and from these forms botanists have given them their names which are almost as various. What proportion do we discover between the stalks and the leaves of flowers, or between the leaves and the pistils? How does the slender stalk of the rose agree with the bulky head under which it bends? But the rose is a beautiful flower, and can we undertake to say that it does not owe a great deal of its beauty even to that disproportion? The rose is a large flower, yet it grows upon a small shrub. The flower of the apple is very small, and grows upon a large tree. Yet the rose and the apple blossom are both beautiful, and the plants that bear them are most engagingly attired, notwithstanding this disproportion. 
What by general consent is allowed to be a more beautiful object than an orange tree, nourishing at once with its leaves, its blossoms, and its fruit? But it is in vain that we search there for any proportion between the height, the breadth, or anything else concerning the dimensions of the whole, or concerning the relation of the particular parts to each other. I grant that we may observe in many flowers something of a regular figure, and of a methodical disposition of the leaves. The rose has such a figure, and such a disposition of its petals, but in an oblique view, when this figure is in a good measure lost, and the order of the leaves confounded, it yet retains its beauty. The rose is even more beautiful before it is full-blown, in the bud, before this exact figure is formed, and this is not the only instance wherein method and exactness, the soul of proportion, are found rather prejudicial than serviceable to the cause of beauty. Section 3. Proportion, not the cause of beauty in animals. That proportion has but a small share in the formation of beauty is full as evident among animals. Here the greatest variety of shapes and dispositions of parts are well fitted to excite this idea. The swan, confessedly a beautiful bird, has a neck longer than the rest of his body, and but a very short tail. Is this a beautiful proportion? We must allow that it is. But then what shall we say to the peacock, who has comparatively but a short neck, with a tail longer than the neck and the rest of the body taken together? How many birds are there that vary infinitely from each of these standards, and from every other which you can fix, with proportions different, and often directly opposite to each other? And yet many of these birds are extremely beautiful. When upon considering them, we find nothing in any one part that might determine us a priori to see what the others ought to be, nor indeed to guess anything about them, but what experience might show to be full of disappointment and mistake. And with regard to the colours either of birds or flowers, for there is something similar in the colouring of both, whether they are considered in their extension or gradation, there is nothing of proportion to be observed. Some are of but one single colour, others have all the colours of the rainbow, some are of the primary colours, others are of the mixed. In short, an attentive observer may soon conclude that there is as little of proportion in the colouring as in the shapes of these objects. Turning next to beasts, examine the head of a beautiful horse. Find what proportion that bears to his body and to his limbs, and what relation these have to each other. And when you have settled these proportions as a standard of beauty, then take a dog or a cat or any other animal and examine how far the same proportions between their heads and their necks, between those and the body, and so on, are found to hold. I think we may safely say 
that they differ in every species, yet that there are individuals found in a great many species so differing, that have a very striking beauty. Now if it be allowed that very different and even contrary forms and dispositions are consistent with beauty, it amounts, I believe, to a concession that no certain measures, operating from a natural principle, are necessary to produce it, at least so far as the brute species is concerned. Section 4. Proportion not the cause of beauty in the human species. There are some parts of the human body that are observed to hold certain proportions to each other, but before it can be proved that the efficient cause of beauty lies in these, it must be shown that, wherever these are found exact, the person to whom they belong is beautiful. I mean in the effect produced on the view, either of any member distinctly considered, or of the whole body together. It must be likewise shown that these parts stand in such a relation to each other that the comparison between them may easily be made, and that the affection of the mind may naturally result from it. For my part, I have at several times very carefully examined many of those proportions, and found them hold very nearly or altogether alike in many subjects, which were not only very different from one another, but where one has been very beautiful, and the other very remote from beauty. With regard to the parts which are found so proportioned, they are often so remote from each other in situation, nature, and office, that I cannot see how they admit of any comparison, nor consequently how any effect owing to proportion can result from them. The neck, say they, in beautiful bodies, should measure with the calf of the leg. It should likewise be twice the circumference of the wrist, and an infinity of observations of this kind are to be found in the writings and conversations of many. But what relation has the calf of the leg to the neck, or either of these parts to the wrist? These proportions are certainly to be found in handsome bodies. They are as certainly in ugly ones, as any who will take the pains to try may find. Nay, I do not know, but they may be least perfect in some of the most beautiful. You may assign any proportions you please to every part of the human body, and I undertake that a painter shall religiously observe them all, and notwithstanding produce, if he pleases, a very ugly figure. The same painter shall considerably deviate from these proportions, and produce a very beautiful one. And, indeed, it may be observed in the masterpieces of the ancient and modern statuary that several of them differ very widely from the proportions of others, in parts very conspicuous and of great consideration, and that they differ no less from the proportions we find in living men of forms extremely striking and agreeable. And, after all, 
how the partisans of proportional beauty agreed among themselves about the proportions of the human body. Some hold it to be seven heads, some make it eight, whilst others extend it even to ten. A vast difference in such a small number of divisions. Others take other methods of estimating the proportions, and all with equal success. But are these proportions exactly the same in all handsome men, or are they at all the proportions found in beautiful women? Nobody will say that they are, yet both sexes are undoubtedly capable of beauty, and the female of the greatest, which advantage, I believe, will hardly be attributed to the superior exactness of proportion in the fair sex. Let us rest a moment on this point, and consider how much difference there is between the measures that prevail in many similar parts of the body in the two sexes of this single species only. If you assign any determinate proportions to the limbs of a man, and if you limit human beauty to these proportions, when you find a woman who differs in the make and measures of almost every part, you must conclude her not to be beautiful, in spite of the suggestions of your imagination, or in obedience to your imagination you must renounce your rules, you must lay by the scale and compass and look out for some other cause of beauty. For if beauty be attached to certain measures which operate from a principle in nature, why should similar parts with different measures of proportion be found to have beauty, and this too in the very same species? But to open our view a little, it is worth observing that almost all animals have parts of a very much the same nature, and destined nearly to the same purposes. A head, neck, body, feet, eyes, ears, nose, and mouth. Yet providence, to provide in the best manner for their several wants, and to display the riches of his wisdom and goodness in his creation, has worked out of these few and similar organs and members a diversity hardly short of infinite in their disposition, measures, and relation. But as we have before observed, amidst this infinite diversity, one particular is common to many species. Several of the individuals which compose them are capable of affecting us with a sense of loveliness, and whilst they agree in producing this effect, they differ extremely in the relative measures of those parts which have produced it. These considerations were sufficient to induce me to reject the notion of any particular proportions that operate by nature to produce a pleasing effect. But those who will agree with me with regard to a particular proportion are strongly prepossessed in favour of one more indefinite. They imagine that although beauty in general is annexed to no certain measures common to the several kinds of pleasing plants and animals, yet that there is a certain proportion in each species absolutely essential to the beauty of that particular kind. If we consider the animal world in general, 
we find beauty confined to no certain measures, but as some peculiar measure and relation of parts is what distinguishes each peculiar class of animals, it must of necessity be that the beautiful in each kind will be found in the measures and proportions of that kind. For otherwise it would deviate from its proper species, and become in some sort monstrous. However, no species is so strictly confined to any certain proportions that there is not a considerable variation amongst the individuals. And as it has been shown of the human, so it may be shown of the brute kinds, that beauty is found indifferently in all the proportions which each kind can admit without quitting its common form, and it is this idea of a common form that makes the proportion of parts at all regarded, and not the operation of any natural cause. Indeed, a little consideration will make it appear that it is not measure, but manner, that creates all the beauty which belongs to shape. What light do we borrow from these boasted proportions when we study ornamental design? It seems amazing to me that artists, if they were as well convinced as they pretend to be that proportion is a principal cause of beauty, have not by them at all times accurate measurements of all sorts of beautiful animals to help them to proper proportions when they would contrive anything elegant especially as they frequently assert that it is from an observation of the beautiful in nature they direct their practice. I know that it has been said long since, and echoed backward and forward from one writer to another a thousand times, that the proportions of building have been taken from those of the human body, to make this forced analogy complete, they represent a man with his arms raised and extended at full length, and then describe a sort of square as it is formed by passing lines along the extremities of this strange figure. But it appears very clearly to me that the human figure never supplied the architect with any of his ideas, for in the first place, Men are very rarely seen in this strained posture. It is not natural to them, neither is it at all becoming. Secondly, the view of the human figure so disposed does not naturally suggest the idea of a square, but rather a cross, as that large space between the arms and the ground must be filled with something before it can make anybody think of a square. Thirdly, several buildings are by no means of the form of that particular square, which are notwithstanding planned by the best architects, and produce an effect altogether as good, and perhaps a better. And certainly nothing could be more unaccountably whimsical than for an architect to model his performance by the human figure, since no two things can have less resemblance or analogy than a man and a house or temple. Do we need to observe that their purposes are entirely different? 
What I am apt to suspect is this, that these analogies were devised to give a credit to the works of art by showing a conformity between them and the noblest works in nature. Not that the latter served at all to supply hints for the perfection of the former, and I am the more fully convinced that the patrons of proportion have transferred their artificial ideas to nature and not borrowed from thence the proportions they use in works of art, because in any discussion of this subject they always quit as soon as possible the open field of natural beauties, the animal and vegetable kingdoms, and fortify themselves within the artificial lines and angles of architecture. For there is in mankind an unfortunate propensity to make themselves, their views, and their works the measure of excellence in everything whatsoever. Therefore, having observed that their dwellings were most commodious and firm when they were thrown into regular figures, with parts answerable to each other, they transferred these ideas to their gardens, they turned their trees into pillars, pyramids, and obelisks, they formed their hedges into so many green walls, and fashioned their walks into squares, triangles, and other mathematical figures, with exactness and symmetry, and they thought, if they were not imitating, they were at least improving nature, and teaching her to know her business. But nature has at last escaped from their discipline and their fetters, and our gardens, if nothing else, declare we begin to feel that mathematical ideas are not the true measures of beauty. And surely they are full as little so in the animal as the vegetable world. For is it not extraordinary that in these fine descriptive pieces, these innumerable odes and elegies which are in the mouths of all the world, and many of which have been the entertainment of ages, that in these pieces which describe love with such a passionate energy, and represent its object in such an infinite variety of lights, not one word is said of proportion, if it be, what some insist it is, the principal component of beauty, whilst at the same time several other qualities are very frequently and warmly mentioned. But if proportion has not this power, it may appear odd how men came originally to be so prepossessed in its favour. It arose, I imagine, from the fondness I have just mentioned, which men bear so remarkably to their own works and notions. It arose from false reasonings on the effects of the customary figure of animals. It arose from the platonic theory of fitness and aptitude, for which reason, in the next section, I shall consider the effects of custom in the figure of animals, and afterwards the idea of fitness, since if proportion does not operate by a natural power attending some measures, it must be either by custom or the idea of utility. There is no other way. Section 5. Proportion Further Considered
if I am not mistaken, a great deal of the prejudice in favour of proportion has arisen not so much from the observation of any certain measures found in beautiful bodies, as from a wrong idea of the relation which deformity bears to beauty, to which it has been considered as the opposite. On this principle, it was concluded that where the causes of deformity were removed, beauty must naturally and necessarily be introduced. This, I believe, is a mistake, for deformity is opposed not to beauty, but to the complete common form. If one of the legs of a man be found shorter than the other, the man is deformed, because there is something wanting to complete the whole idea we form of a man, and this has the same effect in natural faults as maiming and mutilation produce from accidents. So if the back be humped, the man is deformed, because his back has an unusual figure, and what carries with it the idea of some disease of misfortune, so if a man's neck be considerably longer or shorter than usual, we say he is deformed in that part, because men are not commonly made in that manner. But surely every hour's experience may convince us that a man may have his legs of an equal length and resembling each other in all aspects, and his neck of a just size, and his back quite straight, without having at the same time the least perceivable beauty. Indeed, beauty is so far from belonging to the idea of custom, that in reality what affects us in that manner is extremely rare and uncommon. The beautiful strikes us as much by its novelty as the deformed itself. It is thus in those species of animals with which we are acquainted and if one of a new species were represented, we should by no means wait until custom had settled an idea of proportion before we decided concerning its beauty or ugliness, which shows that the general idea of beauty can be no more owing to customary than to natural proportion. Deformity arises from the want of the common proportions, but the necessary result of their existence in any object is not beauty. If we suppose proportion in natural things to be relative to custom and use, the nature of use and custom will show that beauty, which is a positive and powerful quality, cannot result from it. We are so wonderfully formed that, Whilst we are creatures vehemently desirous of novelty, we are as strongly attached to habit and custom. But it is the nature of things which hold us by custom to affect us very little whilst we are in possession of them, but strongly when they are absent. I remember to have frequented a certain place every day for a long time together, and I may truly say that so far from finding pleasure in it, I was affected with a sort of weariness and disgust. I came, I went, I returned, without pleasure, 
Yet if by any means I passed by the usual time of my going thither, I was remarkably uneasy, and was not quiet till I had got into my old track. They who use snuff take it almost without being sensible that they take it, and the acute sense of smell is deadened so as to feel hardly anything from so sharp a stimulus. Yet deprived the snuff-taker of his box, and he is the most uneasy mortal in the world. Indeed, so far I use and habit of from being causes of pleasure merely as such, that the effect of constant use is to make all things of whatever kind entirely unaffecting. For, as a use at last takes off the painful effect of many things, it reduces the pleasurable effect in others in the same manner, and brings both to a sort of mediocrity and indifference. Very justly is use called a second nature, and our natural and common state is one of absolute indifference, equally prepared for pain or pleasure. But when we are thrown out of this state, or deprived of anything requisite to maintain us in it, when this chance does not happen by pleasure from some mechanical cause, we are always hurt. It is so with a second nature, custom, in all things which relate to it. Thus the want of the usual proportions in men and other animals is sure to disgust, though their presence is by no means any cause of real pleasure. It is true that the proportions laid down as causes of beauty in the human body are frequently found in beautiful ones, because they are generally found in all mankind. But if it can be shown, too, that they are found without beauty, and that beauty frequently exists without them, and that this beauty, where it exists, always can be assigned to other less equivocal causes, it will naturally lead us to conclude that proportion and beauty are not ideas of the same nature. The true opposite to beauty is not disproportion or deformity, but ugliness, and as it proceeds from causes opposite to those of positive beauty, we cannot consider it until we come to treat of that. Between beauty and ugliness there is a sort of mediocrity, in which the assigned proportions are most commonly found, but this has no effect upon the passions. Section 6. Fitness, not the cause of beauty. It is said that the idea of utility or of a part's being well adapted to answer its end, is the cause of beauty, or indeed beauty itself. If it were not for this opinion, it had been impossible for the doctrine of proportion to have held its ground very long. The world would be soon weary of hearing of measures which relate to nothing, either of a natural principle, or of a fitness to answer some end, the idea which mankind most commonly conceive of proportion is the suitableness of means to certain ends, and, where this is not the question, 
very seldom trouble themselves about the effect of different measures of things. Therefore it was necessary for this theory to insist that not only artificial but natural objects took their beauty from the fitness of the parts for their several purposes. But in framing this theory, I am apprehensive that experience was not sufficiently consulted. For on that principle, the wedge-like snout of a swine with its tough cartilage at the end, the little sunk eyes, and the whole make of the head, so well adapted to its offices of digging and rooting, would be extremely beautiful. The great bag hanging to the bill of a pelican, a thing highly useful to this animal, would be likewise as beautiful in our eyes. The hedgehog, so well secured against all assaults by his prickly hide, and the porcupine with his missile quills, would be then considered as creatures of no small elegance. There are few animals whose parts are better contrived than those of a monkey. He has the hands of a man joined to the springy limbs of a beast. He is admirably calculated for running, leaping, grappling, and climbing, and yet there are few animals which seem to have less beauty in the eyes of all mankind. I need say little on the trunk of the elephant of such various usefulness, and which is so far from contributing to its beauty. How well fitted is the wolf for running and leaping, how admirably is the lion armed for battle, but will any one therefore call the elephant, the wolf, and the lion beautiful animals? I believe nobody will think the form of a man's leg so well adapted to running as those of a horse, a dog, a deer, and several other creatures. At least they have not that appearance, yet I believe a well-fashioned human leg will be allowed to far exceed all those in beauty. If the fitness of parts was what constituted the loveliness of their form, the actual employment of them would undoubtedly much augment it. But this, though it is sometimes so upon another principle, is far from being always the case. A bird on the wing is not so beautiful as when it is perched. Nay, there are several of the domestic fowls which are seldom seen to fly, and which are nothing the less beautiful on that account. Yet birds are so extremely different in their form from the beast and human kinds, that you cannot, on the principle of fitness, allow them anything agreeable, but in consideration of their parts being designed for quite other purposes. I never in my life chanced to see a peacock fly, and yet before, very long before I considered any aptitude in this form from the aerial life, I was struck with the extreme beauty which raises that bird above many of the best flying fowls in the world. Though, for anything I saw, his way of living was much like that of the swine, which fed in the farmyard along with it. The same may be said of cocks, hens, and the like. They are of the flying kind in figure, 
in their manner of moving not very different from men and beasts. To leave these foreign examples, if beauty in our own species was annexed to use, men would be much more lovely than women, and strength and agility would be considered as the only beauties. But to call strength by the name of beauty, to have but one denomination for the qualities of a Venus and Hercules, so totally different in almost all respects, is surely a strange confusion of ideas, or abuse of words. The cause of this confusion, I imagine, proceeds from our frequently perceiving the parts of the human and other animal bodies to be at once very beautiful and very well adapted to their purposes, and we are deceived by a sophism which makes us take that for a cause which is only a concomitant. This is the sophism of the fly, who imagined he raised a great dust, because he stood upon the chariot that really raised it. The stomach, the lungs, the liver, as well as other parts, are incomparably well adapted to their purposes, yet they are far from having any beauty. Again, many things are very beautiful, in which it is impossible to discern any idea of use. And I appeal to the first and most natural feelings of mankind, whether on beholding a beautiful eye, or a well-fashioned mouth, or a well-turned leg, any ideas of their being well-fitted for seeing, eating, or running ever present themselves. What idea of use is it that flowers excite? the most beautiful part of the vegetable world. It is true that the infinitely wise and good creator has, of his bounty, frequently joined beauty to those things which he has made useful to us. But this does not prove that an idea of use and beauty are the same thing, or that they are any way dependent on each other. Section 7 the real effects of fitness. When I excluded proportion and fitness from any share in beauty, I did not by any means intend to say that they were of no value, or that they ought to be disregarded in works of art. Works of art are the proper sphere of their power, and here it is that they have their full effect. Whenever the wisdom of our Creator intended that we should be affected with anything, he did not confide the execution of his design to the languid and precarious operation of our reason, but he endued it with powers and properties that prevent the understanding and even the will, which, seizing upon the senses and imagination, captivate the soul before the understanding is ready either to join with them or to oppose them. It is by a long deduction and much study that we discover the adorable wisdom of God in his works. When we discover it, the effect is very different, not only in the manner of acquiring it, but in its own nature, from that which strikes us without any preparation from the sublime or the beautiful. How different is the satisfaction of an anatomist, 
who discovers the use of the muscles and of the skin, the excellent contrivance of the one for the various movements of the body, and the wonderful texture of the other, at once a general covering, and at once a general outlet, as well as inlet. How different is this from the affection which possesses an ordinary man at the sight of a delicate, smooth skin, and all the other parts of beauty, which require no investigation to be perceived. In the former case, whilst we look up to the Maker with admiration and praise, the object which causes it may be odious and distasteful. The latter very often so touches us by its power on the imagination that we examine but little into the artifice of its contrivance, and we have need of a strong effort of our reason to disentangle our minds from the allurements of the object, to a consideration of that wisdom which invented so powerful a machine. The effect of proportion and fitness, at least so far as they proceed from a mere consideration of the work itself, produce approbation, the acquiescence of the understanding, but not love, nor any passion of that species. When we examine the structure of a watch, when we come to know thoroughly the use of every part of it, satisfied as we are with the fitness of the whole, we are far enough from perceiving anything like beauty in the watchwork itself. But let us look on the case, the labour of some curious artist in engraving, with little or no idea of use, we shall have a much livelier idea of beauty than we ever could have had from the watch itself, though the masterpiece of Graham. In beauty, as I said, the effect is previous to any knowledge of the use. But to judge of proportion, we must know the end for which any work is designed. According to the end, the proportion varies. Thus, there is one proportion of a tower, another of a house, one proportion of a gallery, another of a hall, another of a chamber. To judge of the proportions of these, you must be first acquainted with the purposes for which they were designed. Good sense and experience acting together, find out what is fit to be done in every work of art. We are rational creatures, and in all our works we ought to regard their end and purpose. The gratification of any passion, how innocent soever, ought only to be of secondary consideration. Herein is placed the real power of fitness and proportion. They operate on the understanding considering them, which approves the work and acquiesces in it. The passions, and the imagination which principally raises them, have here very little to do. When a room appears in its original nakedness, bare walls, and a plain ceiling, let its proportion be ever so excellent, it pleases very little. A cold approbation is the utmost we can reach. 
a much worse proportioned room with elegant mouldings and fine festoons, glasses, and other merely ornamental furniture, will make the imagination revolt against the reason. It will please much more than the naked proportion of the first room, which the understanding has so much approved, as admirably fitted for its purposes. What I have here said and before concerning proportion is by no means to persuade people absurdly to neglect the idea of use in the works of art. It is only to show that these excellent things, beauty and proportion, are not the same. Not that they should either of them be disregarded. Section 8. The Recapitulation On the whole, if such parts in human bodies as are found proportioned were likewise constantly found beautiful as they certainly are not, or if they were so situated as that a pleasure might flow from the comparison which they seldom are, or if any assignable proportions were found either in plants or animals which were always attended with beauty, which never was the case, or if, where parts were well adapted to their purposes, they were constantly beautiful, and when no use appeared, there was no beauty, which is contrary to all experience, we might conclude that beauty consisted in proportion or utility. But since, in all respects, the case is quite otherwise, we may be satisfied that beauty does not depend on these, let it owe its origin to what else it will. Section 9. Perfection not the cause of beauty. There is another notion current. There is another notion current, pretty closely allied to the former, that perfection is the constituent cause of beauty. This opinion has been made to extend much further than to sensible objects. But in these, so far is perfection considered as such from being the cause of beauty, that this quality, where it is highest, in the female sex, almost always carries with it an idea of weakness and imperfection. Women are very sensible of this, for which reason they learn to lisp to totter in their walk, to counterfeit weakness and even sickness. In all this they are guided by nature. Beauty in distress is much the most affecting beauty. Blushing has a little less power, and modesty in general, which is a tacit allowance of imperfection, is itself considered as an amiable quality, and certainly heightens every other that is so. I know it is in everybody's mouth that we ought to love perfection. This is to me a sufficient proof that it is not the proper object of love. Whoever said we ought to love a fine woman, or even any of these beautiful animals which please us, here to be affected there is no need of the concurrence of our will. End of chapter 10 Recording by Andrea Bertelli